I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty. So you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Captain America, a.k.a. the OG Nazi Puncher's Hidden Legacy. What is Captain America? Captain America is one of the world's most iconic superheroes. He's appeared in comic books, movies, and an endless mountain of merchandise. But... What if I told you that one of the actors who played old Steve Rogers, namely in the 1990s canon Captain America film, was actually the son of one of American literature's most reclusive geniuses? And to make the story even stranger, he's practically given up acting in order to protect his father's body of work. It's Catcher in the Rye, but Holden Caulfield has a hat with wings on it. Matthew Douglas Salinger was born February 13, 1960 in Windsor, Vermont. He, along with his sister Margaret Salinger, were born to Claire Douglas and the iconic J.D. Salinger. If you're unfamiliar, J.D. Salinger wrote the famed novels Catcher in the Rye, Granny and Zoe, Nine Stories, and Raise High the Roof Beam. Carpenters, and Seymour, an introduction. Salinger is most widely known for his work, Catcher in the Rye, a probing exploration of adolescent angst and outsiderism that immediately struck a chord with readers of all ages. Catcher in the Rye was a massive success, selling somewhere over 72 million copies in the decades since its release. It has garnered acclaim unlike many novels ever produced during the 20th century. And for this episode, we will officially change any usage of the word kayfabe to phony. <laughs> yes, yes, we'll, which there will be much discussion of. The speculation and curiosity surrounding the writer only helped spur the sales and increased interest. Additionally, Salinger's litigious nature, strict code of conduct, and lack of interest in seeing his acclaimed novel adapted into a feature film produced a perplexity in the general public that caused his success to compound. However, young Matt Salinger was not aware of his father's fame or fortune until he was a teenager, when he first began to read the novels. Uh, before we start delving into old dirty Matt Salinger, have you read Catcher in the Rye? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I read I read Catcher in the Rye in, in high school. Um, yeah, just during during a time when I was just trying to, like, get through reading all of, like, the obvious things that everyone supposed to read like I, I remember just going on this spree of just reading like that and american psycho and uh fear and loathing in las vegas and fight club and a couple other palinic books uh which honestly that that really isn't like kind of my area of interest in reading material uh i'm not super into contemporary literature but i was just i just was like ah, i just need to check these off my box or check these boxes off my list and just read these things so I remember there was just like a there was just like a concentrated like time where I was just reading all of these like obvious books. Yeah, I think I read it. I think I read it first, maybe freshman year of high school. Maybe I think I've read it three times in the. F no, maybe it was maybe it was a little younger than that. I'm not. I'm not sure how old I was when I first read it. Um, did you like it when you first read it? Yeah, yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it just fine. Um, I'm. I've always been more into like. I've always been more into like uh like 18th and 19th century literature. So it, that, that stuff. It's just it's just not the the thing that I'm super into, but I liked it for what it was. Yeah, yeah. I remember being kind of like this. Is this what everyone's? Huh, all right. <laughs> like it's not like, and I don't even mean that in like a in a pejorative way. Like it sounds. 
I just thought that it was, you know, hearing about it so often, it it just seems like it's something other than kind of what it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, by by design and by by the nature of what it is, it's it's this very kind of like listless, sort of aimless, um, almost inconsequential look into this person's life that, like, just by definition. There's no real big drama or like there's nothing really happening in the book. Yeah, I, I liked it for what it was as well, but I definitely liked it more the second time because the first time I brought maybe some more of my own preconceived notions as to what Catcher in the Rye was supposed to be. And then it wasn't nearly as kind of A, difficult or B, literate, you know, like it's it's a it's a cool book, but especially because it struck such a chord with um people who've committed atrocities and there's like conspiracy theories around the book you know where like it was found in all of these assassins jacket pockets and you know the you know notably it was a it was a it was um mark david chapman's favorite book it was uh the guy who shot um gerald ford's favorite book um and you know it, people just find it in the possession of um, people who've attempted to commit assassinations. Um, and and that was kind of my only real, like I knew that it was like, oh yeah, I know it's about this kid, Holden Caulfield. That's kind of really all I knew. Like You're I just like, knew man, I'm about to read something that's going to make me want to shoot somebody. Well, I mean, not literally, but yeah, I was expecting something much more anger based, you know, because I read it at 14 when I was, you know, at what boy at 14 isn't angry, right? You were, I was you were like, like, you were like, come on, Freddy Krueger, let's read this book and then kill the nearest local celebrity in our town, Lisa Frank. Right. Yeah, totally. Like, that's kind of what I was expecting. Like, that's what I was going into it looking for. And, uh, yeah, it was just not that at all. So that's why it was just kind of like a whiplash when I read it the first time. And I was like, what the fuck? Your, sis- your sister read a page of it, though. And the next thing she knew, she was screaming in a, in a, in a Lisa Frank store. So true. So true. Just from, just from a page. Just, just reading the first page of it. Yeah. She wanted blood. Yeah. And then from there, I, I kind of, shocking to no one who listens to the show regularly, I got obsessed with. J.D. Salinger, almost outside of the writing, I was just really interested in his reclusiveness and his um, the cult of personality that built up over time, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more during this episode. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, outside of outside of Hunter S. Thompson, which I really like, I I was I never really got that much into beat literature. Um, I was I just I never really got into like Kerouac or J.D. Salinger. Um, William Burroughs, kind of. I, 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 I think that like Naked Lunch and a few of those of his, of his other things are interesting. Um, but I, I'm all about that Jules Verne, baby. I'm all about that 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 classic literature, that Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah, it's a couple you throw in some some 50s and 60s sci-fi, some Philip K. Dick, some Heinlein. That's that's my shit. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really like the the beats either, just personally. Um, and I think it's it's funny. The reason I'm the, re- the reason I am interested in Salinger is the reason I'm not interested in the other ones. I'm really fascinated by his antipathy towards public relations, which then became its own type of self perpetuating marketing. You know? Yeah. Um, and I am fascinated by the the very real, tangible, reprehensible flaws of. J.D. Salinger as a person, like he was a really fucked up, sad dude, and it like impacted everybody in his life in negative ways. And he felt like he had to be a recluse. He felt an inability to connect with people his own age and became obsessed with young women. And like, I'm not saying I condone any of that, but it is interesting to me as a character study. 
Whereas Burroughs's shitty rich kid drug addict murdering his wife in Mexico thing is not interesting to me. Like that to me is just kind of morally reprehensible and repulsive. And I am repulsed by a lot of Salinger's personal choices as well. But there's something compelling about them that I can't deny for me personally. Yeah, I mean, for better or worse, um, it's it's the polar opposite of what we see today, which we've talked about on the show before, which is like this, like always on. um, You have to constantly be putting every piece of yourself out for consumption in order to be a celebrity or a public figure in our current age of like hyper consumption in social media. Where, you know, it just it just makes me it just makes me like depressed and sad and kind of like overstimulates me in 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 these ways that are really just kind of exhausting sometimes to see how these celebrities have to like, you know, you see Chris Pratt, who's like every hour posting another Instagram story of him just being like, hey, I'm on the set of Tomorrow War and here's me with hanging out with my buds check out this merch that some fucking thing sent me. Here's a hat. I'm going to wear this hat sponsored by hat company or whatever. And just the way that they have to become these like influencers and they have to like start these like production companies and like be these business people and entrepreneurs. And it's just, it's just exhausting. And so that, you know, this is kind of like the opposite of that where it's like, you know, this idea of like uh, the celebrity, the, the, the mystique of being a celebrity and like, curating what people see about you in this in this really extreme way that like creates intrigue around you as a personality and almost becomes like it's funny because it's almost you'd think that this idea of like constantly being out there and constantly projecting all of your inner thoughts and everything about yourself to be a celebrity because there's so much more content in that you'd think that that would become this paradigm where yourself as a person um, almost becomes a part of the content because you're pushing so much out there. But it's actually almost the opposite where, you know, keeping those things, you know, behind the curtain and not revealing anything about yourself, the the very act of concealing yourself, that becomes a part of the content where it's like all, that's almost as much a part of your work as your work is. And it makes everybody scrutinize the work in a way that they don't with people who are in the public eye because you're so fascinated by the individual and their choice to not participate in this round robin of self-promotion and self-aggrandizement that you start looking in the work for Rosetta Stone cues as to who the person really is. You start deconstructing the sentence structure to try and understand more of why the person is the way they are. Um, And that could be a completely foolhardy attempt but it's it's interesting to me. Um, yeah. And also the fact that like, you know, there's a really good documentary. I think it's just called Salinger came out a while ago about basically the, the search for J.D. Salinger before he had died because he was, you know, if anybody doesn't know, the Cliff Notes version of the story is J.D. Salinger is this writer. He wrote a couple short stories and essays that got some attraction or got some traction in the literary world, wrote a couple books And then Catcher in the Rye explodes and becomes this, you know, bestseller, one of the best, most acclaimed novels of all time. And he retreats from the public eye and basically doesn't write any more books after that point. Um, And yet we know that he was writing for like 50 solid years every day, eight hours a day. But none of those books were ever published. Um, He had he never gave any interviews, never gave any public appearances 
had a few romances, most notably with um, a, a a woman writer who we're going to talk about later in this episode, and um, ultimately ended up passing away. And everyone, the kind of conspiracy theory is that he had a vault. He had a vault with all of these books in it. And, oh man, I wonder what's in that vault. And we will discuss that as well over the course of this episode. But just so, just in case you're not familiar with the story of J.D. Salinger, that's the broad strokes of who the guy was. Matt Salinger became fascinated with the art of acting as a young man. He ultimately graduated from Columbia University with a degree in art history and drama. So, you know, he's a pragmatist at heart. Look at the broad chin and windswept blonde hair that he possessed. Does this look like a man who's going to toil away in the land of obscurity and old-ass paintings? No, I don't think so. That's a man who's going to go out into the world, more specifically Los Angeles, and see what he can make of himself. See what gold he can uncover, or, you know, B-movies he can star in. In 1984, Matt Salinger was working as a bit-part professional actor. He landed his film debut in a role in 1984's Revenge of the Nerds, filmed in Tucson, Arizona, where I'm from. A few short years later, he would be cast by Albert Pune in what would be the defining role of his career. Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America. Clap your hands every Davy, and every Davy clap your hands. I just, I just have to state this again for the record. The guy who was in the 1990 canon Captain America movie as Captain America is J.D. Salinger's son. <laughs> like, that is so incredibly strange. Yep. It's also even more strange or ironic because famously uh jd salinger had become so like stalwart against the the film industry and movie making because he had gone and seen i forget which indiana jones movie it was it was the first one i think it might have been raiders of the lost ark but there's a famous story about how jd salinger went and watched i think raiders of the lost ark and he was just like i fucking hated it it was a piece of shit like he wrote this whole scathing review of how like insipid and like shallow um the mainstream movie industry was and the Captain America movie is such a like shameless like attempt at making an Indiana Jones type movie. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Albert Pune directed it, so it's just kind of clumsy and like sewn together with like you know thread and duct tape. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, I love Nemesis. If anybody out there has not seen the Albert Pune masterpiece Nemesis, starring Olivier Grunner, please do so. It's amazing. It's a Terminator Blade Runner mashup film with cool practical effects john woo style cinematography and um uh yeah it's great it's great none of which captain america has none of which none of which captain america has we'll come back to captain america in a little bit after cap matt salinger built a long career as a supporting actor in projects like law and order svu what dreams may come under the tuscan sun house and wetware however it's fair to say that in terms of the genre space Captain America was simultaneously the high point and low point of Salinger's career. If you're unfamiliar, Captain America was created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon and had previously been adapted into a film serial and a TV movie. But the first full-length feature adaptation of Captain America had a long and winding path to the big screen. The original plan was that the film would be procured by the notoriously kooky Menachem Golan and Yorm Globus for their Canon Films group in 1985-ish. They made the films Over the Top, Cutthroat Island, Cobra, Masters of the Universe, and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. All classics. All classics. Um, I actually really like both Cobra and Masters of the Universe. Oh yeah, I wasn't I wasn't joking. 
I, I mean, have I, not. I you know I've never seen Cutthroat Island. I have seen Cutthroat Island. Um, yeah, Cutthroat Island isn't good, and also I hate Matthew Modine. But yeah, Cobra and Master of the Universe and over. I fucking love Over the Top. Over the Top is great. I'm kind of surprised they haven't made another Over the Top. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially because Stallone is just like, what I was in that movie. Yeah, I'll reboot that movie. Like, where are you at? Where are you at, Stallone? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It, I mean, they have they have remade Over the Top multiple times. Like, Real Steel is just Over the Top. Yeah. It's the, over the Top is just, like, guy gets into a competition and then is, like, mentoring some young, like, kid who is either his son or, like, a random orphan that he somehow put into the trust of. Superman 4, Quest for Peace, not so great. Nuclear Man, not so good. Yeah. I mean, Cutthroat Island literally bankrupt. Like, that's the movie that bankrupted them. Yeah. Like, they they dumped all this money into it, and then it was just, like, a total, it was just nothing. Michael Winner, who had directed Death Wish 1 through 3, was originally slated to helm the Captain America project with a script written by James Silk. However, this version was scrapped in favor of Winner recruiting an English TV writer, Stan Hay, to pen the film. This version would follow an elderly Red Skull stealing the Statue of Liberty with the assistance of a female ninja death cult, which... (laughs) Yeah, dude, I've read sections of that script, and it is everything you think it is tell me you haven't read any captain america comics without telling me you haven't read any captain america comics (laughs) i don't know man that sounds great to me it sounds great but it's like what (laughs) yeah this like and this to be the first captain america like maybe the fourth yeah yeah stealing the statue of liberty bro old man red skull a female death cult sounds awesome i don't know what you're talking about but like for part four after they've like set up what what Captain America is and then he's gone on like multiple adventures then to be like, all right, now we're going to get weird with it. And also, it's not like he's, you know, Red Skull is a fucking terrorist. But yeah. here he's just stealing the Statue of Liberty. He's just like proving an emotional point. It's yeah. not like he's it's not like he's committing an act of terror. He's just kidnapping the representation of liberty. <laughs> Also, you're not convincing me. I still think this would make a great Captain America first outing. I just, it, it's, I'm not saying it's not. I just, old. I, I'm not even saying it wouldn't be a first great outing. I'm saying it's just, it's just fucking weird. It's really weird. It's really, really weird. Especially, I love, you know, in all of the descriptions. I haven't read the whole script, but I've read chunks of it. And all the descriptions online, you know, they always talk about how he's an old man, Red Skull, old man, Red Skull, blah 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 blah, Grim Reaper, old man, Red Skull, and. Whenever that happens, I always just picture it. It's the Red Skull from the existing canon movie, but just like wearing a shitty gray wig. This version faltered and Winner started over with Stan Lee and Lawrence Block writing. Yeah, Stan the man was going to write one of these. I wonder if this was the version that was produced around the time that this movie poster was generated. Can you tell me in words what this movie poster looks like and what the aspect of this this movie poster is that drives me up the wall. Yeah, so this this poster has come up in previous episodes that we've talked about and also um you know if you haven't if you haven't uh, if you're listening to the show and you haven't checked it out yet and you are interested uh we we have a couple different TikTok pages. Um we have the Deep Cuts TikTok page which is at Mystery Treehouse and um I have my own uh TikTok page at Dead Boy Detective and Dave has a TikTok at X Dave Baker X is that what it is? Um, and on these pages we do video, we do explainer videos, we do we do videos where we talk about some crazy story and 
some cool thing we like and some interesting like it, it's basically like a short form version of the show. Um, and on all three of our pages, we've done stuff where we've talked about comics and like the I- the issues in the comic book industry of people taking credit for things or being credited for things that they didn't have anything to do with. And on those specifically on TikTok a lot, we get a lot of hate for those. We get a lot of people who are just like, fuck you, man. Stan Lee's the shit. He never took credit for things. So this poster specifically has been used as evidence in many a TikTok argument as like, no, Stanley absolutely stole credit for shit. And not only did he steal credit for so many things, but he stole credit for things that just made no sense. So this is a poster, uh, which is it says the year of canon. And it's a Captain America poster. It has a, uh, a an illustration of, of Captain America running at the camera. He's on like a blood red background um, with like a silhouette of a city, which like totally doesn't match up with Captain America's vibe at all. Like it, this is like almost like. This is like a the Punisher vibe almost. So it's really weird. Um, and it has Captain America in this big uh red, white, and blue font with like a like a almost like a comic booky type like sound effect explosion graphic behind it. And uh this little tagline or whatever says, uh, America's star spangled superhero battles the forces of evil. Um it's basically like a pros- prospective poster for like a Captain America movie that was going to be made by Canon. Um, so they're basically like making this and being like, we're going to make this. Um, and it has all these credits at the bottom. Um, you know, the Canon group Inc in association in association with Marvel entertainment, so on and so forth. And the big thing on this poster is that it says, uh, it presents a golden globus production, Captain America based on Stan Lee's Marvel comic strip character. Which, if you don't that's, know, that's what, that's what it says on this poster. If you don't know, Stan Lee did not create Captain America. Well, not only that, because that's that's you can say that about like a bunch of other characters where you're like, oh, he says he created Spider-Man. But is that really true? We did a whole episode about that. Steve Ditko created Spider-Man. This is beyond that. This He had nothing to do with it. This was created whenever he was like 17 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Jack Kirby and Joe Simon created Captain America, period, full stop. End of paragraph. Close the book. Beat yourself to death with the book. Stanley had nothing, but Stanley had nothing to do with it. He was like a teenager. He didn't. Did he? He didn't even work at Marvel yet, or did he? Or he, he was did. Like a, he did. He was, he was, but he, he was, was like an, an intern. intern or something. Yeah, he was an intern. Yeah, yeah. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Ugh. This is like saying this is like saying zeros deep cuts. That robotic piece of shit hasn't helped us edit one episode. And fucking Debo vid 18. What a wasted opportunity. Like he never did shit. Like he came in strong and he was like, I'm going to fact check every episode of this. And then just nothing. He just never again. No, nope. we've never heard from Debo vid 18 again. Nope. Hillsmer's done more than those two idiots combined. Yeah. And that's saying something. So next up in the revolving carousel of people trying to make a Captain America movie was John Stockwell. He was going to direct and Joseph Tolkien was going to write it. However, financial troubles caused Canon to go under. Stephen Tolkien? Stephen Tolkien. What did I say? You said Joseph Tolkien. That is, I don't know where that came from. That is not, it's Stephen Tolkien. I don't know why I said Joseph Tolkien. Um, Captain America, uh, directed by Dean Stockwell and J.R.R. Tolkien. (laughs) Financial troubles caused Canon to go under. And Menachem Golan was able to kind of rest a few projects away from the corporate structure of Hannon before he left. One of those projects that was never realized was an adaptation of Spider-Man, 
It was going to be directed by James Cameron. The one where um, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, uh, they they inherited one aspect of the James Cameron Spider-Man movies, which was the organic web shooter. That idea came from the James Cameron script for Spider-Man. But in James Cameron's version of Spider-Man, the web shooter and the entire concept of just turning into Spider-Man in general was all a metaphor for going through puberty. So the web shooter was literally symbolic of him like shooting his load because he went through puberty. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember when those like Starlog articles and Cinefantastique articles were like, oh, there's going to be a James Cameron Spider-Man movie and Leonardo DiCaprio is going to play Spider-Man. And I was so fucking amped. And I read one of those drafts maybe two or three years ago. And I was like, uh, yikes, this is not good. Yeah, I mean, I I guess because you were a kid. I mean, I guess you just that idea of that is exciting. But uh, yeah, I mean, script writing is not one of James Cameron's strong suits. So uh, like, I don't know. I, I don't think. It, yeah, that does like as an adult thinking like, oh, James Cameron is going to write a Spider-Man movie. Like, that doesn't sound like it's going to be good to me. I love James James Cameron. I mean, I love some things of James Cameron. I don't like Avatar, but... Uh, yeah, but this is, like, right after Terminator 2, James Cameron. So it's like, yeah. fuck True Lies, give me a Spider-Man movie. The issue being, you would have gotten True Lies, James Cameron, making a Spider-Man movie, not Terminator 2, James Cameron, making a Spider-Man movie. Yeah, which, is a bit, which would have been fucking weird. Tom Arnold is Uncle Ben. Jamie Lee Curtis is Aunt May. He's just, like, with great power comes great i have a three inch penis i'm married to roseanne oh yeah roseanne is aunt may that's that's the thing because yeah. he, he gets her in in on it mm-hmm. no tom arnold is dr octopus oh yeah yeah or rob schneider maybe rob Sh- is rob schneider in that no but i'm just trying to think of like people who were inexplicably big in the 90s yeah and like you it know kinda, rob it, Sh- it kind of blows my mind to remember that rob schneider was in judge dread like i'm just like Every time I remember, I'm like, what? Like, I'm always yeah. surprised by that fact. Rob yeah. Schneider was the comedic sidekick in Judge Dredd. Yeah. My brain just like can't retain that information. It reject it rejects it every time. So weird. I watched that movie again a couple of weeks ago. Tell you one thing. The production design on that movie is cool. The movie yeah. itself fucking sucks. But yeah. I like the way his suit looks. I like the way the, the log uh, lawgiver looks. I like the motorcycle lawmaster. I don't know. There's cool stuff in that movie. Yeah. The ABC Warriors robots. They're cool. I just why are you starting off with the Rico story? Like, that's what you're starting a franchise. It's the perfect thing of what you're saying of like stealing the Statue of Liberty. That's like the Rico thing is like the fourth thing you do with a Judge Dredd movie franchise. It's not the first. You have no stakes yet. They're oh, yeah. Cryogenically frozen clone brother. 20 minutes into a movie? <laughs> yeah, people were just like, who the fuck is Judge Dredd? And then they're just like, he has a clone brother? Yeah, no. You know what's a better, I think this has probably been said before, but you know what's a better Judge Dredd movie than the Judge Dredd movie? Fucking, uh, what's that movie with uh, Wesley Snipes where he also plays a cryogenically frozen cop? Oh, ju- uh, Demolition Man? Demolition Man. Demolition Man is a better Judge Dredd movie than Judge Dredd. Yeah, for sure. Hot take. Um, but basically, Menachem Golan, mega producer in the 80s, uh, leaves canon as they're going under. He takes Captain America and Spider-Man with him. Golan then taps Albert Pune to direct the movie. And originally, they were going to actually shoot them together utilizing the same sets. So Albert Pune was going to direct Spider-Man and Captain America at the same time where they were going to have second unit directors handling 
action stuff and Albert Pune was going to be I think they were they were talking about shooting them in Italy I think and Albert Pune was going to be literally making both movies at the same time just the weird janky canon version of the MCU <laughs> yeah exactly but ultimately this this didn't happen it fell through um and so Albert Pune just made the Captain America movie um and if you're you're not familiar um Albert Pune has a long history of making these kind of like low budget sleazy B movies um, he made Nemesis, which I've already talked about, Cyborg, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, um, which Cyborg was actually made using the sets and costumes for Masters of the Universe 2. That movie, they were trying to get Masters of the Universe 2 off the ground. The company's going bankrupt. So Albert Pune was just like, we've got like three weeks to make a movie. Um, I know this martial arts dude named Jean-Claude Van Damme. Get let's me just, JCVD like, in here. Stat. Yeah, let's just let's just make a movie in like three weeks, which they did. And it is technically a movie (laughs) um he directed radioactive dreams for empire and mean guns as well um he was notorious for agreeing to shoot two movies simultaneously case in point nemesis two and three were one production only problem being that they were produced with a budget of only enough to make one movie meaning each movie was just a person running around in the desert for an hour and a half (sighs) And it's about as good as it sounds. Uh, if anybody hasn't seen the Nemesis sequels, they're laughable. They're so strange. They literally are like 20 minutes of a movie and then an hour of the main character slow motion running around the desert. It is so fucking strange. Yeah. And there's nothing more like, you know, give, give me like, give me a low budget janky bullshit movie any day of the week. But like that's whenever there's that much filler in like a low budget movie like that's just so disappointing because you're just like oh this isn't going to be fun this is going to be like just nothing this is going to be like 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 having air blow in your face which is which is we'll talk about it more but it's kind of how the captain america movie is yeah it's like this is nothing yeah the because the original movie is basically you know it's a probably five million dollar movie starring the at the time kickboxing champion of the world olivier grunner and he 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 like went on this crazy diet to make the movie where he I think he only had like eight percent body fat and he plays a kind of Terminator Blade Runner esque style guy where he's a human with cybernetic enhancements hunting down androids that are passing themselves off as human and it's you know the the same age old uh, cyberpunk question of like where does humanity end and the android begin and am I human and what is a soul and blah, 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 blah. It's those, it's those same ideas not executed particularly well, but that kind of is where the charm comes from because Albert Pune is like a sixth Xerox of those kind of Philip K. Dick ideas of consciousness and what it means to be a human. Um, and what does it mean to be a jacked buff dude with 8% body fat? from brussels i think he's from brussels maybe i or france maybe i'm not sure where he's from but he's european jcvd is um, the muscle from brussels my, my oh boy, yeah my yeah boy. that's true that's true that's true maybe he's french I'm don't, not, ever, I'm not, don't ever forget it yeah let's see where is where is olivier grunner from let's see i'm obsessed with olivier grunner um i'm friends with him on facebook and i love him uh oh he's he's oh he's rush oh no uh yeah i'm friends with him on facebook and he's He's like my favorite person to who's born in Paris, France. Interesting. He's French. Dave, um, Dave catfishes him every week. No, man, I, I fucking love that guy. He so basically after he he stars in Nemesis, doesn't get along with Albert Pune, so doesn't return for any of the sequels, but has a fairly successful career as kind of like a mid tier 
direct-to-VHS action movie star in the 80s and 90s. I'd be disagreeable if I had 8% body fat. That dude was probably just fucking starving and just like exhausted. Yeah. Um, and and so from there, he a, a, eventually the acting thing, I think, kind of dried up a little bit for him. Maybe I'm, I'm not quite sure. But now he is like a military consultant and a helicopter pilot. So he like teaches people how to like go out into the desert and do like speed run marksmanship ship shooting and like stunt driving Humvees and like piloting helicopters and shit. And it's it's mesmerizing to me because he just posts like slow-mo footage of himself just like gunning down rubber dummies. Like he's like the fucking flash, just like bah, 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 bah. and there's all these just like rubber dummies just falling over in the middle of the fucking California desert. I love it so much. I'm obsessed with him. And uh, you know, I wish he had come back for the sequels, but he didn't. He could be the uh he could be the new pilot for the Lincoln Jr. Yeah, yeah, for real. So in order to get this Captain America movie produced, uh, Golan secured a budget of $10 million, but they had to shoot it in Yugoslavia. Despite Pune's screw it, I'll do it regardless of the quality approach to filmmaking, he seemed to be a very well-intentioned director working on this project. Uh, Well, the casting of Captain America was really complex because I had appealed to Marvel if we could create, have two Steve Rogers, one sort of a skinny and, and more uh, uh, sickly version of Steve Rogers in the beginning. And then I wanted to cast uh, Howie Long, a football player, as the Captain America when he was after the experiment. And uh, Marvel said, no, it had to be the same guy. And then I thought, well, maybe if we could change the color of the costume, because they had a black costume, Captain America at that time, but they didn't let us do that either. So the casting was really governed by the fact that we had very little flexibility in what we could do. And uh, so we needed to find somebody that could fit both sides of the role. Albie Pune Punes was ahead of his time in wanting to uh, portray those two extreme body types between the, the physical transformation. And honestly, Howie Long, like I never would have thought that. Like I never would have looked at Howie, Howie Long and be like, oh yeah, that guy is Steve fucking Rogers. But as soon as he says that, totally, 100%, 1990s Howie Long, completely perfect Captain America. What about perfect ni- Captain America. What about 1990s Howie Mandel? Slightly less effective for Cap, but I could see him as Red Skull. But what about if he had the condom on his head and he's blowing it up, but it's got little wings on the side of it? Sold, 100%. I knew that would get Sold. you. Sold, yeah. yeah. Um, let's watch this, uh, this trailer for uh, Firestorm, which is a movie that Howie Long starred in where he played a smoke jumper which is a cool tag or title um and uh let's talk about how he long is captain america for a minute four years ago a man named randall earl shay stole 37 million dollars and left 17 men and women buried alive six hours ago he disappeared from the state penitentiary with a team of five deadly felons at this second, somewhere in the Wyoming wilderness, the storm is about to hit. From now on, we're Canadian firefighters. We have about 10 hot acres in Delta 4. Now, the best smoke jumper ever to battle a blaze. Take me down. Is about to find out there's a lot more to fight than just fire. In case you haven't noticed, we're not firemen. We 
thousand ground pounders running through the woods. It was a prison break. There's a girl with him. I know. She's a hostage. Again. Why don't we see if you're still not a flight? Those two fires will collide and suck all the oxygen out of the air. You won't survive. You'll be in the middle of a firestorm. On January 9th, fight fire with fire. You are picking me! I had never seen this movie, never heard of this movie, and then I watched an interview, another interview, a different one with with Albert Pune, where he talked about where Firestorm was the movie that like really got him convinced that Howie Long would be uh, a great Captain America. Look at that chin, man! Look at the fucking chin on that guy, bro. You put wings on Howie Long's fucking head right now, and I am totally here for it. That motherfucker looks like Captain America. Yeah, I mean, Chris Evans is a totally fine Captain America, but similar to the Batman dead end actor, it's like, oh yeah, this guy is like, this guy has got like the the 1940s, like beefy, like like old style, like carnival strongman look to him that, that would look really, really good as Captain America, like an OG, OG Captain America. Yeah, completely, completely. Unfortunately, Albert Pune was overruled by the, the canon and the Marvel gods. So we didn't get that. Got We got what we got. Shooting the film in Yugoslavia to save money explains some of the locales in the film. Listen, you cannot cast this football player, this buff football player to be Captain America. Nobody knows who he is. He's not a big enough name. You have to cast J.D. Salinger's son. You know that infamously recluse book author who wrote that book about that like loner outcast kid who would just walk around kicking cans and shit? His son. He's cap. <laughs> this is the studio backed safe choice for this. It's funny because Matt Salinger looks like the type of guy that like would be serving. He's like the only white employee at a Chinese food restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Matt Salinger looks like he was in the original lineup of the Red Hot Chili Peppers before they got famous, but he left right before to like start a family. <laughs> Matt Salinger is the Pete best of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, Matt Salinger looks like the type of guy who um, goes to, like, multiple different types of churches. Like, he goes to, like, a Baptist church, an Episcopalian church, a non-denominational church, just to hedge his bets. Yeah, Matt Salinger looks like he attempted to patent an invention for playing golf while you're sitting on the toilet, but he just gave up trying to follow through with the paperwork of it so the invention actually like got made and got popular but he just didn't receive any of the money for it because he just never patented it matt salinger looks like the type of guy who auditioned to be the dad on seventh heaven but then lost out to the dad on seventh heaven (laughs) matt salinger looks like the most interesting choice he's ever made in his life is wearing his socks inside out because it just feels more comfortable to him. Matt Salinger looks like the type of guy who practices 
his sitcom turn smile and nonchalant nod for sitcom intros in his bathroom mirror in the morning. Yeah. And he doesn't, and he's not even like trying to become an actor. He just does that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Matt Salinger looks like he spends a good portion of his day researching which is the most in style cologne to wear. Matt Salinger looks like the type of guy who owns three unopened boxes of Draco, Draco what's it called? Draco Noir? Draco, Draco Noir. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Salinger looks like he married somebody just because she was the daughter of the owner of a country club because he couldn't afford to get into it uh, like by himself. Matt Salinger looks like the type of guy who types into his Twitter, not all men, and then sits there looking at it and then deletes it and then types not all men again and then sits there looking at it and then deletes it again and then types not all men and then just hits send. Matt Salinger looks like when he was a teenager, he was really into Rage Against the Machine. And then as an adult, he has posted about how he doesn't listen to Rage Against the Machine anymore ever since they got political. (laughs) That is so good. I don't think I'm going to be able to beat that. That is really, really good. That is really good. Also, I just found a Matt Salinger 1990 movie poster for $12 on collectors.com, and I kind of want it, like, really bad. I mean, for $12. Yeah, I might have to do this. Oh, man, that is so funny. Yeah, you you win that one. You win that one. <laughs> um. All right, so let's 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 just take a break here and just talk for a minute about the movie Captain America produced by Canon Pictures. Uh, Andrew, what are your overall just kind of global thoughts on the movie? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Is it fun? Is it terrible? Yeah, so um, I, I I didn't rewatch it to to do this episode, so I haven't watched it since I was a kid. And um, basically, uh, I've 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 told similar stories to this so many times on the show anytime we talk about movies and stuff but um i saw this movie in the typical wait wait, hold on let me see let me see if i can guess your story okay yeah um your captain america story is you saw the box art repeatedly at your grandparents grocery store that had a movie section in it but you never watched it because you weren't a big comic book guy but you would hide movies that you actually wanted to watch behind it because nobody would ever rent captain america And then one day you finally were like, well, fuck it. I guess let's watch this Captain America thing. You started watching it and you were like, wow, this is fucking awful. But it was so bad you couldn't stop watching it. Close. That that that's more of a mashup of all of my other stories than it is a, an actual guess of like what the story is. That's more of a you've amalgamated like several different stories into one mega story. Thank um, you for explaining the joke. But <laughs> that means that means I did a really good job and it was really <laughs> funny. When you when you have to go and explain it, then that's that's when I know I've done my job right. Um no, but yeah, no, I didn't I didn't uh I didn't see it and I and also I don't think it has like a particularly interesting cover, um, if I remember correctly. I I saw I just I saw it at the at, at the video store um and rented it and uh and I watched it and with Captain America it's it's funny because I I rented it and watched it multiple times and I remember the movie is like it's one of those movies like I mean there's so many like this um I mean even even like the the old like original Captain America movies with with Reb Brown from the 70s are kind of like this 
Um, and a lot of these like just cheaply made movies um, where like there's like five minutes of something cool or like kind of cool. And then the rest of it is just like people sitting and talking. And it's like that's what the Captain America movie is. It's like you see it and you're just like, it's a fucking Captain America movie, motherfucker. Like, look at this costume on this thing. And he's a superhero. and He's fighting crime. He's got this shield. And then you watch the movie and like an hour of it, an hour and 20 minutes of it is like Matt Salinger, not in his costume, just like driving in cars with people and like in like meetings. And then like five minutes of it, he's in the costume fighting people. But for some reason, like I rented it and watched it. And then I like I rented it again because I almost wanted to like I was almost like there's no way it was that bad. And I like wanted I I, 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 had, I, I like had to do a double take of it where I had to like rent it again to be like, it couldn't have been that bad. I feel like maybe I watched it wrong or something. And I remember I and I and I rented it again and watched it. And the only and like I said, it was it's just it's like mostly nothing because it's like one of those it's one of those movies where they just didn't have enough money to actually like do anything cool. So they trick you into thinking that it's a certain type of movie by putting it on the cover. And there's like 10 minutes of footage of something. And then the rest of it is just like people sitting in like boardrooms, like talking to each other. And the only thing I remember about the movie that was interesting was that I, I at when I was a kid, I thought that the Red Skull costume was creepy, like just the the fucking weird Red Skull head. And I, I mean, as a kid, I thought the Captain America suit was cool. Like I, I, I liked it. And I remember that there's a scene towards the end whenever he get. I think I think like Red Skull like throws his shield back at him or something, and it like cuts him open on his stomach. So like the 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 costume gets ripped. And then there's like a cut in his stomach. And I and at, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, shit, like that's like like in my mind, it was like gory, even though it's not at all. But in my mind, I was like that, like, oh, shit, like a gory like that was gory. Like he got fucking cut open. Um, And then the best thing about this movie that was at the time was just like so shocking. And then as an adult, it's like hilarious. And whenever I saw the clip of it, I like laughed out loud. There's a scene in the movie where a doctor goes to like shake a politician's hand and he like starts to shake his hand. And then in the middle of him reaching his hand out to shake him, he transforms it into a a, a, a Hitler salute and he goes, Heil Hitler. And then he shoots him with a gun. It's one of the funniest things that's ever been filmed, <laughs> which is even weirder, too, because in this, the Red Skull is not a Nazi. He's fucking Italian. Yeah. I, like, I don't, what, I, I don't even I don't remember like the details of the of the plot or anything like that. So I, I, all I remember, the the, the, I remember the, the I remember the getting cut open thing. I remember the kind of freaky Red Skull head. And I remember the handshake that morphs into us into a Hitler salute. And then he pulls a gun out and shoots a guy. That's all I remember about this movie. Basically, the the, the high concept of the movie is that Red Skull kidnaps the president because the president is pro environment and it's going to make steps to uh regulate companies in order to protect the environment and the red skull is like no we must not do that i don't know what voice i'm doing but he's like no we we can't do that i'm the red skull and i'm evil so no and then captain america has to go try and save the president from italian red skull and he has to like weirdly his go-to move is he just steals cars from people i'm not even joking no i know i i I didn't remember that at all i have no memory of that but i saw the clips which we're gonna watch and like it's so weird so weird um yeah i would say my relationship to this movie is i wanted to love this movie and i watched it a lot as a kid trying to convince myself it was great 
and it is not great and it is not good and the suit looks dumb and the thing that drives me crazy about the suit is that matt salinger's ears don't come out of the suit like captain america's 90s costume for those who don't remember is he has a cowl a blue cowl with a big white a on the forehead and eagle wings that come off the back of his helmet and his human ears protrude out of the cowl for some reason, they didn't do that with this costume, and they put rubber ears, rubber flesh-colored ears protruding, in air quotes, protruding from Matt Salinger's Captain America skull. It is so strange. Yeah. And after I noticed it, I couldn't unsee it. Yeah, and also, there's no, like, nose shape on the front of the cowl, so it's got this, like, it's just, like, this cloth that goes flat over his face, so it gives him... It gives his face and his nose the impression of kind of looking like this, like flat, like Phantom of the Opera nose. Like it, it gives it the illusion that he just has this flat face with no nose. Yeah. Um. The other, the other interesting change is that he's not a young Jewish kid who gets the Super Soldier Serum to go fight in World War II. He's a young kid with polio who gets the Super Soldier Serum to go fight in World War II. I think he fights in World War II. I don't even remember. It's been a minute since I've seen it too. But it's it's interesting that they're like, oh, he doesn't physically grow when he gets the super soldier serum. He just doesn't have polio anymore. Well, I mean, that's that's interesting because it, 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 it's interesting to see the behind the scenes that um, Albert Pune wanted two different actors because he was he was obviously going for he wanted to show the transformation of like this, like emaciated, malnourished, skinny, bone skinny person Go, getting the super soldier serum and becoming this huge person, this buff, like strong guy. Um, and then they just like, for whatever reason, didn't want to do that. So making the movie, they were just like, OK, well, we can't have two different actors playing him. We don't have the visual effects technology that they're going to have in a couple decades to do what they did in Captain America, the first Avenger. So we just have to, like, change that. The other thing that's really interesting about this to me is that they ran out of money multiple times while shooting the movie. They, and they ran out of money so bad that they ran out of film. So they shot, in air quotes, shot multiple scenes with no film in the camera because Albert Pune thought, if I tell everybody what's happening, they're going to all just walk off the movie and we won't be able to finish this. So they spent whole days pretending to shoot the movie just to keep the crew there to buy themselves more time in order to afford to buy more film to finish the movie, which is like so sad. And it really it kind of makes you want to grade the movie more on a scale or on a curve when you're just like, wow, they were really just doing the best they could, man. They were doing the best that they could. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, I, I've I've done things like that a couple of times where like at work, like not like shooting with no film in a camera or whatever, but like shooting a video where you're just like, you know, that you're not going to post it. But you're just like, ah, if I tell them that we're not going to do anything with this, it'll just like kill their morale. So we'll just we'll just we'll make the video, but we're just it's not going to get posted. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right, so the film was initially intended to be released in April of 1990 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's iconic creation. Notice that Stanley's name is nowhere in there. However, Captain America was released for its initial theatrical run in England on December 14th, 1990. It then lingered in limbo for almost two years before being put out in America on direct to VHS and cable in the summer of 1992. The reception of the film, well, it was about what you think it was. People didn't like it, plain and simple. Excelsior, true believers. People criticize me because I put on the poster that it was Stan Lee's Captain America. And they say, 
Stan, you had nothing to do with creating Captain America. It was Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And to that I say, when I wrote that, when I told the Canon Films people to write that, I meant that it was my version of Captain America. And the thing is, is that there's Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's Captain America, which is the young Jewish kid who gets the super soldier serum and becomes this huge, strong, you know, perfect human who goes off and fights Nazis. My version of Captain America tricks people into stealing their cars. That's what I always thought was missing from Cap. All those years working in Marvel and looking at what Joe and and Jack were doing and being like, yeah, this is pretty good, but he doesn't steal any cars. And then I finally had my time to shine. So this truly is Stan Lee's Captain America. He tricks people and steals their cars. All right, let's. Let's watch this clip of uh, Matt Salinger as Captain America faking being sick in order to steal a car. And he does it not once, but twice in the movie, for the record. Twice. I think I'm going to be sick. What? Would you please pull over the car? I am going to get sick. Okay, all right. Such compelling cinema as well. Just He's just like sh- sauntering away from the back of this pickup truck. We, we 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 see him walk all the way over to him. Like we just this shot is just shows him walking all the way over to him. Hey! Captain! Are you okay? You, you, you. And now Matt Sandra just sprints back to the car and hops in this fucking truck and steals the car from this guy. This is another scene where they're in the city, the romantic love interest and Steve Rogers. Sharon, could you pull over for a minute? I think I'm going to be sick. Captain America is car sick. <laughs> My favorite part about that is so he does the same thing over again. In the first the first one, he's just like I'm going to get sick, like he's and he's at, he's like acting like he's sick or whatever. In this one, He's like with this woman who I, I think is the love. I don't I don't remember anything about this movie other than those three things I mentioned. So I, this is the love interest or I don't know who this is, but she's like he's like in the car with her. And when she says when he says, I'm going to get sick, she goes, Captain America sick. And then he gives her like this little like cheeky smile for some reason. Like it makes no sense if he's pretending like he's sick. He, he like gives her this like little like coy smile when she says that sprinting around to the other side of this fucking neo geo bullshit it's like a terrible plan too it like doesn't actually like work like he runs to the car and then she easily gets to the car before he can drive off like it does like the plan doesn't even make any sense or work listen i know that this captain america doesn't fight any nazis i know that he we don't see any heroic scenes of him you know fighting a, a a crowd of enemies and throwing his shield and knocking people out and all of these things that have come to be associated with cap but the thing is that this is stan lee's captain america he steals cars after faking having to puke to trick the people that are driving into stopping the car so that he can get out pretend like he's gonna puke and then when they come to check on him which first of all how did he even know that that would happen how would he know that the person would get out and check on him maybe they would just stay in the car and wait for him to puke like i know if i was driving with somebody and they said they needed to get out and puke i wouldn't get out of the car and like go to them i wouldn't walk out of my car and walk to them puking i would like i would let them have their privacy and let them puke in peace and i would wait in the car for them to come back so the plan just involves this assumption that the person is going to get out and follow somebody that they barely know while they're puking 
That's the Stan Lee Captain America. He tricks people with a plan that doesn't make any sense into stealing their car. Excelsior! That character decision basically sums up the whole film. Cap is a leader. He's a tactician. He's simple and quaint, but filled with charisma. He's not someone who's going to fake being sick to steal a car. Stan Lee's Captain America would, though. He's the type of person that could explain to you concisely and earnestly that he needed your car because there's an alien invasion or the Red Skull is going to blow up the Statue of Liberty or whatever. And you'd believe him. This moment, or rather this weird double beat, because it happens at least twice in the movie, is everything that's wrong with the canon Captain America film. That would be too boring and tedious, though. God damn it. Why would you go through... I hate this bit. Why would you go through the process of the diplomacy and this just drawn-out thing of trying to gain their trust when you could just pretend like you're sick and like you're gonna puke and then get out and walk like 10 feet away and assume that they're going to get out and follow you to check on you, and then when they get to you, run back to the car, jump in, assuming once again that they didn't take their key out of the car when they got out, because I know that me personally, anytime I get out of my car, I take my key with me, because it's just a natural thing that most people do when they get out of the car, assuming that they're not, they're just going to leave their car in running with the key in there, and you get in the car and you drive away. Why would you do anything else? Act break. Act two, the Salinger family. It's fair to say that Captain America, for all intents and purposes, both killed Matt Salinger's acting career and made him widely recognizable. Since leaving the role of Cap, Salinger has appeared in many roles, as previously stated. He even segued into becoming an independent film producer. Ironically, Salinger's sister, Margaret, was briefly involved in the acting world as well, appearing on the show The Upchat Connection. Simultaneously, as the decades passed, public interest in their father, J.D. Salinger, grew and grew and grew, reaching a fever pitch when Joyce Maynard, acclaimed author in her own right, released a book chronicling her life and specifically her time between her 18th and 19th years living with Salinger, engaging in an affair with him. Her book, titled At Home in the World, was released in 1998. Six years ago, Joyce Maynard burst onto the public consciousness. She wrote an essay for the New York Times magazine titled An 18-Year-Old Looks Back on Life. It brought her mailbags full of letters, but there was one in particular that changed her life. The author, J.D. Salinger. Their relationship lasted less than a year, but its impact on her was tremendous. Although she has written about most of the major events in her life, she has so far refused to talk about J.D. Salinger. But in her latest book, she looks back on her entire life and includes the time she spent with the famous reclusive author. It is a memoir entitled At Home in the World, and I am pleased to have her back at this table. Welcome back. Oh, it's good to be here. Jen, do I get credit, as you just said, <laughs> yes. for, me, for this book? Yes, I, I tend to. I try to... to uh... To do what to people follow my yes advice. always I yeah. do everything that people tell me to do. Um, last time I was on this show, you said I should write a book about my life, and so you did. I went right home and started typing. Why did it take so long? Why um, now? Well, actually, there were a few other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, after I was sent away, dispatched from the home of J.D. Salinger when I was 19 years old, um, uh, the world was uh, there was no place for me. I could hardly go back to college. I, um, my year with Salinger had left me with a feeling of uh, um, a, a lot of 
alienation from the things that I had once loved and cared about. I could no longer pursue the, the dream of going to New York and, and uh, publishing and, and uh, having a, the sort of career life that I had once envisioned for myself. And, and I, I carried with me for a lot of years the sense of failure that I had. I was no longer worthy of this man's approval, but neither could I embrace the world that I, was, that I returned to completely. Um, so what I did with this experience was to put it away. It was too painful, really. And um, I carried on with my life. I, I, the story that I tell of the years since is, is not one of wandering aimlessly through life. I, I married, I had children, I, I worked, I wrote books. But I, I carried also this sense of obligation to maintain the uh, to protect the secrets and the, and, and the privacy of this man who had not, I think, protected me particularly, um, until my own daughter turned 18. And um, if I was unable to recognize um, my own, the, the things that I might have deserved for myself when I, when I looked at, at Audrey two years ago, when she was the age that I was, when I first left the world to be with Jerry Salinger, I saw the experience very differently, and I no longer felt that my primary obligation was to protect his secret. Joycey Main Mains! Listen, Joycey Joycey Main Mains, whenever J.D. Salinger kicked you out on your patoot, out on the street, and you say you had nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be with, you didn't belong, here's what you should have done. You should have gone out to the freeway, you should have gone to the, the shoulder of the freeway, you should have hitched a ride. You should have stuck your thumb out and hitchhiked. And the first person that stopped and picked you up about five minutes into the ride, after you've introduced yourself, after you've made the small talk chit chat, this is where I'm going. This is where I've come from. You know, the, the, the driver shows you a picture of his wife and kids, whatever they whatever happens about 10 minutes after you fake that you have to puke. God damn it. <laughs> God, I'm telling you, this it. has worked for me at every stage of my life. Every time, every every time that somebody was like, "No, Stan, you didn't create that character. You had nothing to do with it. You, I drew the whole thing, and you just sat there and said a name." Every time somebody was like telling me that I didn't create Spider Man, or I didn't create, you know, I didn't create uh, the Fantastic Four, I didn't create the X Men, I just suddenly faked that I had to puke and I got away with it. It worked every time. So you just, you fake that you got to puke. They pull the car over. You get out. You run back in. You steal their car. You're on top of the world, baby. Excelsior. God damn it. God damn it. When in doubt, fake that you got to puke and the world is your oyster, which incidentally, I don't eat because I will puke. God damn it. If I knew that this episode was just going to be a one long running Stanley bit, I would have been like, I'll write another episode for us to record today. A few years later, Margaret Salinger released her own book titled Dreamcatcher, where she was very disparaging of her father. In it, she detailed how Salinger was abusive to her mother, supremely controlling, how he would starve himself, how he practically did not live with them in their house, instead opting to work day and night on his writing in a shed behind their home. How he became obsessed with Scientology and mysticisms of various sects. About how he would drink urine and other bizarre acts in attempts to gain enlightenment. About how her parents rarely had sex and about 
how her mother supposedly attempted to burn down their house as a means of suicide. Needless to say, this didn't go over very well with the rest of the family, specifically Matt Salinger, who refuted many of his sister's claims. J.D. Salinger passed away on January 20th, 2010. His estate was then turned over to Matt Salinger and Colleen O'Neill Zakreski Salinger, his third wife. Man, J- J.D. Salinger, he, he died before he got to see the 2010s. He missed a whole vibe, man. He really did, bro. He never got to, he never got to hear that one song that was like, Tonight, tonight, party on top of the Hollywood sign. Tonight, tonight. He never, he never, he never got to hear tonight oh yeah he never, yeah he never got to hear, hear fun we are young yeah he god man he missed a whole vibe he never got to he never got to hear uh paramore's like 80s reboot se- second wave like 80s after pop. laughter yeah after laughter yeah he, ne- he never got to hear after laughter man what a what a fucking shame he never got to see he never got to see uh that movie uh with uh with Michael Sarah, where he like had a mustache or whatever, plays a Mexican dude in that movie, doesn't he? Does he? I don't know. I, I, I think that movie's. I think that movie's I, I all in Spanish, and I think he plays a Mexican dude. I didn't. I didn't see it, and neither. I didn't. Did J- I, didn't neither, I didn't see it neither either. Neither did so J.D. Salinger. And, and, yeah. But you know, we had the privilege of we could have saw it if we wanted to, but not J.D. Do you think J.D. Salinger ever went to the gathering? The, I mean. I'm sure he did like like that was what that was what he was doing in those times whenever he was, you know, secluded from public, the public eye. He was just like, there's no phonies here. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, he was a full on juggalo. In fact, he was he he was the original Shaggy to dope. And (laughs) when he died, he was was Shaggy to dope the whole time. And it was like it was like a Paul is dead, like fucking Avril Lavigne thing. Or when he died, he was replaced with a new Shaggy to dope. Yeah, yeah, he really was. And the sh- the new Shaggy to dope was Chris Hansen, and that's why I see Chris Hansen is going to the to gathering yeah. this year. And it's yeah. gonna be a it's gonna be a thing where like he'll it, like Shaggy to dope will be on the stage. And he'll be like, all right, that was a that was a dope ass song. Whoop whoop. Uh, excuse me for a second. I gotta go. Uh, get something out of my car. And he runs off stage, and then Chris Hansen comes out, and he's like. Hello, I'm Chris Hansen, and I'm here to make an appearance at the Gathering of the Juggalos. I have to take a shit. And then he runs away, and then Shaggy <laughs> Tito comes out, and he's like, Oh, I just missed Chris Hansen. I love that guy. I can't believe I keep missing him all night. <laughs> yeah, I love I love this bit. Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one thing. If noted recluse author J.D. Salinger was here... I would totally be in the same room with him. I think we do. We need to talk more about J.D. Salinger's weird proclivity for young women. Or does that kind of sell itself? Because it's really weird. Like he had this whole thing where like he dated Joyce Maynard when she was 18. And then I mean, is there is there any is there any like author from the from the 1940s through 70s slash like any guy who wasn't like into underage girls? Like, is, Is that like a surprise? Fair enough. Like, like, yeah, fucking all, you know, all those, all those guys, uh, uh, fucking what's his name? What's that other, other, 
blanking on his name for some reason. Anyway, yeah, they're all pedophiles. So the Salinger estate, which is now looked over by former Captain America himself, Matt Salinger, supposedly has an entire slate of novels and short stories that will be released over the next coming decade. That's right. I said decade. Salinger left specific instructions as to how and when his works were to be published. And his son has been a stalwart defender of his legacy and wishes, even going so far as to hold interviews, partially speaking French. We can't translate this because the subtitles are also in French for some reason. Uh, so, Matt, I have a few questions for you. Um, first, when you were a kid, did your father used to read your books or tales? And did you have books that he suggested for you to read? Uh, yeah, he read uh, all the time to, to my sister. And, uh, and the, um, he, he read fairy tales, he read um, action stories, he read um, um, really whatever we were interested in. Um, Matt Salinger looks like he made a deal with his wife that if he came with her to this book club, she would go with him to a Steely Dan concert. <laughs> Matt Salinger looks like the type of guy that has his um, Friday night blazer, and he is currently wearing his Friday night blazer. Yeah. Matt Salinger looks like he spent his 401k on opening up a cheese shop. Matt Salinger looks like the type of guy who will come up to you in a bar and be like, my wife and I noticed you. Can we buy you a drink? For sure. He definitely looks like a like a swinger. Uh, no, no, no. Andrew, it's a practitioner of the lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Yes, of course. Kudos for you, Matt Salinger, trying to do an interview in, in French, man. That, I like that. Good for yeah. you. Kudos for you, not kudos for us, because <laughs> no, we can't understand what he's saying. Yeah. We can't translate it, but we're just watching people speak in French and not know what they're talking about. In 2019, on the 100th anniversary of his birth, Matt Salinger, well, it wasn't his birth, on the 100th anniversary of J.D. Salinger's birth, Matt Salinger went on tour, answering questions and publicly dispelling rumors about his father. My father's 100 years old and he's not a pedophile. Wearing the same blazer that is his Friday night blazer. My name is Erica Wagner. I'm an author and a critic. I write for the New Statesman. I write for Harper's Bazaar. And I'm really thrilled to be here this afternoon talking to Matt Salinger, the son of J.D. Salinger, who's come over here to Britain to talk about his father's work. My first question is, I heard you say, read you say, that you have spent quite a few decades, 58 years, you said, sort of avoiding talking about this, not engaging with your father's work. Tell me what brought about this change. Well, I engaged with my father's work, but we're about to watch. We're about to listen to uh, a, a while of an interview where this um, this interviewer um, sort of discusses uh, J.D. Salinger's body of work as well as his legacy. But I would love it if she starts off like that and then she quickly pivots to talking about the Captain America movie. And then just keeps asking him about the Captain America movie. And that's She's all like, she wants to talk about. So what was Albert Pune like on set? <laughs> but 
not in a public not in a public way. way yes. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the 100th of anniversary course. of his birth. Um, Penguin Random House is is re-releasing new well releasing new editions of of his books. Um, I thought that deserved a little bit of support, but would I be here for that? No. It seemed like a good time to correct some, uh, we'll just call them myths or misapprehensions, misapprehensions maybe? works <laughs> um, uh, that have been propagated by, by various uh, biographers and, and reporters that um, um, I just thought it was time that the, the readers that my father cared most about um, should know some truths. Um, and I wanted to tell them personally that uh, yes, he did keep writing, and yes, we were going to publish pretty much everything that he wrote. And as you said, you corrected me saying, of course, you have been engaged with your father's work for many years, and you've been a staunch uh, defender, I would say, of his work as regards copyright, as regards, yeah. and there's been, as I understand, um, quite a lot of that to do. Was that, um, did you always know you would take that kind of stuff on? Because so you've always been dealing with his estate, I want to say, with his work. Well, I, I, I wasn't really involved with his work or estate until he died. Um, uh, other than sort of when he'd come out of his workroom you know, very excited about something he'd written and would want to read it to me or something, you know, but, um, and enjoying his work. But I never talked about it and I never was involved in the business of it at all. I mean, I knew his agents, um, I knew his publisher, but um, no, I had my own life and my own family and I was doing, I was doing. My biggest regret is that my father never got to hear that one song where Lil Wayne, Kanye West, Drake, and Eminem teamed up. You think about this. J.D. Salinger never heard DJ Khaled say, We the best music! Yeah, to, 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 to all of us in this world, there's always another one. But to J.D. Salinger, there wasn't even the first one. J.D. Salinger truly did die before we reached the pinnacle of culture. Yeah, we missed it. The question remains as to why Matt Salinger's perspective on the happenings of his youth diverged so greatly from people like Joyce Maynard and his sister, Margaret Salinger. But suffice it to say, they do. What do you think? I think that when there's a legacy to uphold, regardless of the truth, a certain type of person chooses the myth. Is that what Matt Salinger is doing? I really don't know. All I can say is I'm interested to see if Salinger's work will resonate with the public that hasn't had any new work from him in over 55 years. But let's be real. Nothing J.D. Salinger is going to put out in the next decade is going to be anywhere near as bad as Captain America. But that is something that I was thinking about a lot recently, you know, in, in kind of mentally preparing for this episode. The, the idea that, you know... I think so much of an artist's life is is about timing and so much of it is about your work resonating with a certain cultural status quo. I mean, we're, we, we've been joking about like Young Money and DJ Khaled and all these things from the 2010s, but like all of those works have a very specific patina. And if you released DJ Khaled X, Eminem X, Charlie XCX in 2050, no one would care. They'd be like, whoa, this is like really weird and old and bad and all these tropes from the 2010s are ugh, ugh, ugh. And I'm so curious 
if either J.D. Salinger was not concerned with that aspect of the work or his ego was so large that he was just like, I'm timeless and people are going to gravitate to my work regardless of when it's put out. Like, I'm just so curious about the, the mindset behind that. What if it, what if he what if he, the first book that gets put out that was that he wrote that's posthumous, posthumously published? It's just it's like a little pamphlet and you open it up and it just says, you're a jerk. I know 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 you're a jerk. Jerk, 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 jerk. You're a jerk, 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 jerk. I mean, I would love that. Or what if the next the book he he next the next book he puts out is just called DJ Khaled, and it's just his his whole his whole body of work is just like a weirdly precognitive like prediction of all of the 2010s. You open it up and it's, you know, to my loving DJ Khaled, you indeed was the best music. Here's to another one. You open the page and it's just every word is just another one, another one, another one. Another one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know because I, I don't even know what the because it's interesting because uh, a similar a similar um, a similar situation is something like Prince who has a similarly large library of unreleased material, a whole vault full of full albums that he recorded that he just like never released like decades worth of from, from description decades worth of material that was not just like, Oh, here's some half songs and like scratch recordings. It was like fully produced albums that he just was like, nah, this is not going to go out that he has in, in, in a vault and, you know, with, with it kind of up in the air, whether it's going to, any of it's going to get released or not. And some of it has been released and whether or not any of like the full scope of it is going to be, be released is just kind of up to his estate and whether or not they want to like cash in on it or whatever. But like, he never, like it, it wasn't a thing where he's like, Oh, I'm going to record all this stuff. And then when I die, like put it out, like he never, he never wanted it put out. He, he had some kind of something in him that was like, this should not be out this does not represent me well enough. Like I have to curate my body of work and like, I just, this can't be a part of my legacy. And if they, if the stuff gets, does get put out, it'll be against his wishes. Um, and there's a few other people, you know, creators like that, that have this body of unpublished or unreleased work that they don't want put out or they didn't. And if it does get put out, it'll be against their wishes. So I don't really understand why you would write all this work and then want it to be published after you die. I don't I don't like your question of like, was he concerned about these things being sort of released out of time and being like put out into like a new cultural context where like maybe when they, if they had been released, you know, when he wrote them, they might have been this great thing that would have been like highly regarded, but released 20 years after the fact. It'll just be like, this sucks or whatever. Um, I can't even get to that part of it because I don't even know why you would want to do that in the first place. Well, he was obviously very disturbed by that feedback loop of creating work, putting it out into the world and having there be a reaction. Like he and just wanted up- he just wanted to write in a vacuum and then That's just what it feels like and then just yeah. like time release everything after the fact. Like I've yeah. I've written a whole career's worth of work without in a vacuum without any kind of uh you know the 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 law of observation affecting anything and I'm and, and I'm I'm aware that I'm a big enough name because I have this the success of Catcher in the Rye under my belt that everything I do put out will get published so it's not like a you know struggling artist like oh will I ever get noticed like you know that you that it'll be noticed you know that it will have a reaction positive or negative yeah yeah that makes that makes sense that's that's pretty interesting to want to 
created an entire body of work like unobserved and have no feedback loop whatsoever. And then like because, you know, later on in that interview, Matt Salinger talks about how um, the, it was, the interview is from 2019. And in 2019, he said that they wouldn't be releasing anything for another like six years. So, yeah, I think and I uh, in in the in that Salinger documentary that came out a couple years ago, I think they even have the timeline where they have like something gets put out in 2025, something gets put out in 2035, something gets put out in 2037 or whatever the years are. It's like it's very delineated of what is being put out when and and how much time is in between each of them, which is it's a very interesting idea. Um, that sounds like the ramblings of a crazy person to me, but also he lived in a fucking shack for the majority of his life. So, uh, you know, that's why he's interesting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's an odd thing. I mean, we, we've talked, we talked, we've talked in depth about the idea of like your work, like not being appreciated until you're after you're dead. And we, we both kind of said like, I wouldn't want to do that. Like, like I want I want to make things and then like have people enjoy them now, even if it's like at even if it's like I'm never regarded as some kind of fucking like genius. I'd prefer for somebody to like look at my thing now and be like, that's pretty cool than to like die. And then everyone be like, they were a visionary. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Any uh, any closing thoughts on either Matt Salinger being Captain America and the steward of the uh, literary catalog of one of the canon's most important writers or uh, just what a weirdo? Matt Salinger or uh, Jane Salinger is. Yeah, or I mean, do you have or do you have another Matt Salinger looks like riff? Yeah, I mean that it's really weird that JD Salinger's son was Captain America in like a really bad movie that was just like 90% not a Captain America movie. Um that's very strange. Um but, you know, uh, in in terms of like in terms of Matt Salinger shepherding the JD Salinger estate, um I think that's totally true. I think I think like you know, you hear you hear from these people like you could maybe say like, I'm not saying I think this, um, but you could like maybe make the argument that Joyce Maynard is like an opportunist that's trying to like profit off of this story or whatever. And like, I guess you could even maybe say that his daughter is that too. Like she just wanted to publish her book, I, like why she would make up these lies about her dad and like all these horrible things that he did. Like, I don't really understand why somebody would do that, but I guess you, you could stretch it. And if you squinted, you could say that she was an opportunist, but like. These types of stories coming from multiple people that have no like joint interests, like there's no commonality between Joyce Maynard and J.D. Salinger's daughter of like why they would team up to like both lie about him in this way. So, you know, you you look at the totality of the stories that have been told by people that were close to him and these things about the way he was and the abuse and the problematic shit and just the fact that he was kind of just an asshole. And you just got to look at it and be like, I, 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 I feel like I'm going to err on the side of like thinking, believing that and thinking that's probably true um, to some margin of error. So, you know, I think it's absolutely true that Matt Salinger is just like my dad was a total piece of shit, but I I want this money. So I'm going to be or even if it's not even I want this money, it's like something of like some combination of like I want this money, but also this other combination of like I got to protect the legacy because this is my family. This is my name. Like, am I going to like go out there and just say my dad was a piece of shit and destroy the only like importance that my name has in this world? I tried to be an actor. I was fucking Captain America. It was a total failure. Nobody knows about me anymore. Nobody cares about me. The only thing I have is that my dad was fucking J.D. Salinger. I'm going to protect this name with my entire life and make sure that his and by extension, my name has this legacy and is not tarnished by these stories of how he was an asshole or abusive or 
you know, a pedophile or whatever. So I think it's that's totally what it is, which is like very sad when you think about it to imagine that this kid was like his dad was just not there for him. He was kind of shitty to him. He just wasn't a presence in his life. He didn't provide him any support. And for him to still just be like, I'm going to swallow all of that and go out there and just lie to people's faces and tell them that my dad was a great guy because I just need to protect the legacy of our name. That's just that's just very sad to me. Yeah. And I, I that's my read on it, too. Like that is 100 percent what I think it is. Yeah. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. Uh, if you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so. X Dave Baker X on all the social meds or heydavebaker.com for my books. Or if you are near a bookstore or comic book store, please go into them and buy Everyone is Tulip, published by Dark Horse Comics, available everywhere right now. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on the side of a highway, doubled over retching appearing as if i'm about to puke any second now as somebody slowly approaches me but just at the last second as they reach me and start to ask me if i'm okay i quickly get up turn around and run back to the car jump in and drive away having successfully stolen their car and you can't find me on the internet because i'm not on social media but if you want to pay your specs to the dear sweet papa pricey you can go to his website dapricerights.com where you can get his comic deadbolt ai private eye you can also get some Deep Cuts merch by going to deepcutspod.com and clicking on the shop, or you can go to bit.ly.com slash deepcutsmerch. You can get some t-shirts. You can get some coffee mugs with some cool Deep Cuts um, uh, designs. We also have stickers now. We have a couple new designs for stickers if you check out the shop. There's been a few new uh, graphics added for specifically for stickers. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.